I'm sure you have all heard the phrase that such and such a thing was functioning as a well-oiled machine. Usually that phrase refers to some process or some system that is functioning optimally, right? There's no, no wasted energy, no wasted time. Everything is just humming along smoothly, and whatever the, the goal is, whatever the task at hand is, that is being accomplished. There's no hang-ups in the process. Not long ago, some of you know, I purchased a bit of a project truck that I've been working on fixing up. Well, one of the issues with that truck was a bad oil pressure sensor. That sensor measures the, the oil and the pressure within the engine, seeking to know if the engine is receiving the oil that it needs to function properly. If an engine does not get the oil it needs, it starts making a lot of extra noise. It'll ping, it'll tick, rattle, knock, make various noises of different kinds. Eventually, if that problem persists, it will have issues firing as it should. It begins running less efficiently. Because oil serves to both lubricate and cool the engine parts, without the oil, the parts begin to rub. It creates friction. The parts begin to stick. They get damaged. The added heat will eventually warp the parts, and then the oil that is left in the machine will begin to turn to sludge, and eventually the entire engine will grind to a halt, being completely seized up. And because of the damage that that would cause, the only thing that is to do is to replace the engine. On the other hand, if the engine is well-oiled, if All the moving parts are sufficiently lubricated. They will glide with very little friction. The oil lubricates and it cools. The engine accomplishes its designed task. And with regular maintenance, the well-oiled engine can function and last for many, many years. Well, God has given instructions for His church that, if followed, will help the church to function as a well-oiled Machine, and she will accomplish the task which God has given her, accomplishing her God given design. But what is that design? What is the purpose of the church? What is it that she is to be doing? This morning we're going to take a a little bit of break from our study through the book of Judges. We've been working through Judges chapter by chapter, verse by verse. We're taking a break from that study this morning to consider this passage from the New Testament. The name of our church is Pillar Fellowship. If you've ever paused and took a moment to say, why, why is that our name? Why, why have we selected that name? Well, this sermon is the answer to that question. If you would, open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3, the first 13 verses of the chapter outline the the qualifications of elders and deacons within the church. These are to be men of high moral character. They're to be above reproach, sober-minded, self-controlled, etc. What we learn from the text that we are going to study today is that God has given these leaders with these roles and these responsibilities and this, these qualifications in order for a specific purpose to be shown forth that the church should know how she ought to function. These things are to be in place, and Paul is going to make the argument, because of what the church is. Elders are to have these qualifications because of what the church is. 
how we behave as God's church is directly related to what the church is. And because of what the church is, and because of what the mission of the church is, the leaders are to function and to conduct themselves according to the qualifications that He has laid forth. So what is the church? What is her mission? Well, let's look at our text this morning. We're going to pick things up in 1 Timothy chapter 3, beginning with verse 14. Paul writes, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by the angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Paul begins this paragraph after laying out the qualifications of the elders and deacons, letting Timothy know the reason why he is writing these things. He gives an explicit reason. In many ways, this paragraph can serve almost as the, as the purpose statement for the entire book of 1 Timothy. This is why I'm communicating these things to you. You're to behave in such a way, you're to live the way the church is to be ordered in this way because this is what the church is. And he says that, that I'm writing these things, and there's an urgency to his communication. There's an urgency. I, I'm writing. I desire, to, to, I desire to come and teach you, but I'm, just in case I'm delayed, this information is too important for me to delay until I come. I need to let you know this now. I need to remind you of these things now. I need you to know this right away. I don't know if you ever come upon a a piece of information that was just so pressing. Maybe it was really good news or maybe it was really bad news or whatever the case may be, but it was so pressing information that that you had to share it with someone. You had to communicate that immediately and you couldn't wait to be with that person in person. You had to to send a text message. You had to make a phone call. You had to let the person know right away. On Paul's day, of course, there's no telephone, it wasn't even a telegraph, right? There was, there, was, there was nothing to communicate information that rapidly. There was no email, no text messaging. If you wanted to communicate something, you had to show up in person or you send a letter. Well, Paul, in case he's delayed, he wants this information to go forth, so he writes this letter. It's this critical information for the health of the church. Since he doesn't know exactly when he'll be able to come, he sends this letter containing the vital information about the qualifications for leadership, among other things about how the church ought to function. Why is it important to know these things? Well, Paul writes, I write these things so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself. Paul wants the readers not just to know particular information, but to take that information and to connect it into how they live their lives. This isn't just for the purpose of head knowledge. It's not just so that we can know more information. It's to impact our lives. There's, there's an ought to these things. He says how one ought to conduct himself. It's necessary to live this way. These aren't suggestions. There's a moral weight to what Paul is communicating. 
There's a moral ought here. Not just information that we can just take, or, take it or leave it. No, there's, there's a, significant to, to the, a significance to these things. And then he goes on to describe what the church is. He says the church is the household of God, the church of the living God, a pillar and support of the truth or the pillar and buttress of the truth. And so as we, as we see Paul's argument unfold here, as we see his instructions unfold, we have to pause for a minute and ask, why does Paul communicate these things here? Why doesn't he just say, okay, I, I write these things to you so that you'll know how to conduct yourself in the church of God and just leave it at that? Why does he stack up all these descriptions? It's not just the, the church of God, it's the household of God. It's the church of the living God. It's the, it's the pillar. It's the buttress. He just, he just stacks all these descriptors one on top of one another. Why does he do that? I believe what Paul wants us to see is the vital connection between what the church is and what the church does. Who we are impacts how we live and how we conduct ourselves. This is why the issue of identity is such a crucial issue. If you don't know who you are and why you exist, you will struggle in life. I mean, this is, this is true across every, every area of life that we could think of. This is true of companies. Studies have shown that companies that are clear about who they are and why they are in business, they're the ones that have the most success. This is true of individuals. Those who have a clear sense of identity and purpose are the most well-adjusted. Furthermore, the identity that you embrace will impact your behavior, either for good or ill. You as an individual are made in the image of God. You are created to be His representative on the earth and proclaim the glory of God. If you are in Christ, your identity should be found in Him. And when we embrace all that Scripture says about who we are, that should impact how we live our lives. That should have an impact about about how we conduct ourselves. And this is why, even as we engage the culture that's around us, the issues of identity have such a huge impact upon our society. Identity politics, identity lifestyle. That's why these things can be so dangerous and have a degrading impact and effect upon our present culture. The issue of identity is critical, and that's true of companies, individuals, and it's true of churches as well. It's true of churches. I referenced earlier that the, we have named ourselves Pillar Fellowship. It's, there's an intentionality with that. This is why we have our, our purpose statement on these banners every week in front of us. It's not just fancy decoration that makes it nice to look at. I hope it's that, but it should be more. Like It's to remind ourselves of something important. This is why we have core values. These things help us remember who we are and what it is that we're to be doing. We as a church must be clear on who we are as that will set the stage for how we conduct ourselves, how we live. And it's that connection that Paul wants us to make. Who we are impacts what we do. And so, Paul says, I'm writing these things to you 
They're too urgent for me, for you, uh, me to wait until I come. And I want you to consider them, and as you consider this, I want you to know what the church is, and that will impact how we behave. So, what is the church? What are these descriptors? What is it that, that Paul has given us? Well, there are three things that I want us to observe here. First, we are the household of God. And as such, we are to embody the truth relationally. It's not advancing on my thing here. As God's household, we embody the truth relationally. Scripture often speaks of the reality of Christians as brothers and sisters in Christ. When we receive Christ, we become children of God. There's many verses that speak to that reality. John 1.12, I'm going to run through a couple of passages pretty quickly. If you want, you can write them down. John 1.12, but to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. We are adopted into God's family and given the rights and the privileges thereof. Romans 8, 14 through 17, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. As God's children, as those who have been adopted into the family of God, we are called to interact with one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. We are called to relate to one another as a family. You know, there are dozens of one another passages and commands all throughout Scripture that that teach us how we ought to interact with one another. Each one of those commands assumes that something is true. Every time a one another command is given, there's, it's a, there's an assumption that something is true. And that assumption is that we are in relationship with one another. Because we can't live out with one another if with, with individuals that we don't have some level of relationship with. We, we can't love one another. We can't be kind to one another. We can't forgive one another if we are not in relationship where offenses could be caused, where there's opportunities to love, where there's opportunities to engage. We cannot sacrificially love, serve, and edify and encourage those that we never interact with and never see. I know that uh, many, if not all of us here, have experienced some level of, of familial dysfunction. When these times occur, it can always be painful and challenging to navigate because sin is always damaging to relationships. Well, God knew that. He's provided instructions to family relationships, how husbands are to relate to their wives, wives to their husbands, children to parents, parents to children. There's all kinds of instruction within God's Word about how these things, how we are to relate to one another. And if we return to the Word of God, we find the instruction that we need for for healthy family relationships if we're willing to humble ourselves and live according to the instruction that He has given. The same is true for God's household. Just as sin can mess up family relationships, sin can mess up church family relationships. 
When we, when we strive for our own agendas, we might be tempted to live for our own sake. And as we engage with one another and offenses can be given, we can be tempted to live for ourselves. Well, God has given us the antidote for that. He's given us His Word as it instructs us for how we engage one another as His household. We are to live gospel-empowered, gospel-infused, gospel-informed lives, lives that are informed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. A church family will be tempted, and the devil would love nothing more for us to slide into dysfunction over things that really, truly don't matter in the long run. And when those temptations arise, we have an opportunity to embody the truth of God's Word as we live out the one another's with one another. Listen to this passage from Philippians chapter 2. You know, we studied Philippians not all that long ago, so this passage should be familiar to us. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. So then, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being, of, uh, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceits, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. There's a call for humility here. Verse 4, let each of you look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. We're not to strive for our own agendas, but look how we can serve and benefit one another, and we're to reflect the gospel of Christ even as we do that. As, as Paul goes on to say, have this mind among yourselves, do these things, just I'm saying, just, just like what Jesus Christ did, which is yours in Christ Jesus, verse 6, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. We have an opportunity as God's household to embody the truth of God's Word. Relationally, as we interact with one another, we embody the gospel. Jesus Christ was willing to, to sacrifice Himself and to give of Himself. And even as He was willing to do that, we have the opportunity to do the same. We can lay aside our own agendas for the sake of loving those around us. We can show deference to one another. We can lay aside our own desires. And every time we do so, we embody the truth of His Word for the watching world to see. And make no mistake, the world is watching. The world is watching. Well, as we do embody the truth relationally, I hope that we would be able to truthfully sing the song. And I don't know if this is a song you're familiar with. I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God, washed in the fountain, cleansed by His blood, joint heirs with Jesus as we travel this sod, because I'm part of the family. The family of God. When we live out the gospel in our relationships with one another as God's household, we embody the truth relationally. Second, as a pillar, we uphold the truth 
declarationally. Look at what Paul says, I, uh, right? So you know how one ought to behave in, in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. We're going to pause there for a moment. The church of the living God. This is important to note. No other false church, no other false religion has a living God. We're the only ones. All the other false gods of the world, all the other false idols, they're, they're not real. They're imagined, right? They don't actually exist. No other religion has a living God. Our God is not formed by stones or by wood or imagination or anything else in nature. But rather, He is the one who made the stones. He's the one who made the wood that other religions fashion their gods out of. No, our God is alive. And because He is alive, He is active. To be living is to be active. Our God is not like Baal that, that was taunted by Elijah on the mountain. Oh, maybe, maybe He's sleeping or maybe He's in the bathroom and you just got to wait and you got to call Him out. No, our God is not that way. He is a living God. He is an active God. He is active in His creation. He enters in and He speaks. He's alive. He is active and He speaks to His people. He is not silent. He has given us His Word. And He has given us His truth. He has given us His Spirit that dwells within His people. And so as a living God who has revealed Himself to us and has given us instruction on how we ought to live, we now, as God's church, as His household, as the church of the living God, we now have the opportunity to uphold the truth that He has communicated and to proclaim it to others. We uphold the truth that the living God has spoken as pillars of the truth. We are to be pillars, upholding the truth declarationally. Now, I've kind of made up a word there. You will not find declarationally in the dictionary, but that word communicates how we are to be holding up the truth. The church is not called to be passive, but rather active in her proclamation and upholding of the truth. As you know, I'm a bivocational pastor. I operate my own electrical business. In the process of that, I have the opportunity to be around homes that are sometimes being remodeled and stripped bare of everything. It's just a full gut. All the drywall is taken down. All the old wiring is taken out. It's just a complete gut and remodel. And sometimes in the midst of that, they're not just gutting the house, but they're even rearranging the house, literally taking out walls, making some rooms bigger, putting walls in other places. Well, the carpenters in the process of that, they have to be very careful. They have to be aware of which walls are load-bearing walls that are holding up the structure of the house. Because if they take out a load-bearing wall and are not providing sufficient support for that, the house will begin to have issues. It will eventually collapse over time. Well, as pillars of the truth, we are called to uphold the truth. Not in the sense that if, that if we didn't exist or if we didn't do our, our job that the truth would cease to be. You know, heaven and earth will pass away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Amen? But there is the reality 
that God has entrusted us with the truth of His Word, and we are called to uphold that truth as pillars. We must be a people that can be depended upon as a source of God's truth in a confused and truthless culture around us. We must be active as we communicate that to others. Think of Paul's word in Colossians chapter 1, verse 28, where he says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and, and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. This is an active proclamation. When there are things going on in the world around us, are we the kind of people that, that will be sought after as sources of truth, of stability? You know, I remember years ago when, you know, when, when 9-11 happened, and those airplanes crashed in those towers, and the world stood still as everyone was glued to their television screens in disbelief, couldn't believe what was happening in front of their eyes. A gentleman I know was telling the story how you know, he, he wasn't a pastor, but he was an individual that was very clear on what he believed and was active in proclaiming that to others. And when the world stood still that day, and it seemed that all hell was breaking loose, he had phone call after phone call with individuals who were reaching out to him, just looking for any kind of guidance about how to process what was happening. How do we think about this? What is happening? And how do I get made right with God? Because I know that life can be ended in an instant. They turned to an individual they knew was a source of truth, who was grounded, who was secure, who was stable in their faith. But the only way that they could do that, the only way that they knew who it was, that that was someone that they could turn to, is if that individual had been active in proclaiming truth, that they knew he was someone that they could turn to because he had presented himself that way. He had communicated a truth in times past. They knew that he had built a relationship with them and so that those individuals could go to him as he upheld the truth throughout that relationship. Well, we have such an incredible opportunity. We have a tremendous privilege to be God's spokesman to declare in love to the world around us the truth of His Word. When Jesus issued the Great Commission in Matthew 28, when He called His disciples to be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, when Paul speaks of his evangelism efforts as speaking nothing but Christ and Him crucified, and we are called to a life of upholding the truth of the living God, we are to be a pillar upholding the truth declarationally. Finally, as a buttress, we support and defend the truth tenaciously. Now, depending on what translation you have in front of you, that's, yeah, that word uh, buttress is a little bit of an odd word, and it's not something that enters into our vocabulary every day. 
Different translations render this word differently. The NASB says a pillar in support of the truth. The New King James CSB NIV says foundation. The King James says ground of the truth. The the Net Bible says bulwark. And the LEB says mainstay. And of course, the ESV says buttress. Each of those translations are still words that are not fully common to us. I mean, what is a buttress? What is a mainstay? What is a bulwark? We don't, we don't use these words often. Well, the differences in the translation and in the, in the use of words that don't often enter into our vocabulary, they, they do re- reveal a level of difficulty that exists with this word. A difficulty with how we ought to understand this word and how to bring it into English. This is the only place in all of Scripture where this word is used. It's found nowhere else. So there is some debate about how we ought to understand this word, but, but I believe that there are two ideas present with this word. And the two ideas are this. The first has to do with support, the concept of support. A month ago, Lizzie and I, we were up at uh, her parents' place, my in-laws, where her, one of her brothers was getting married. I was asked to monitor the sound booth for this outdoor wedding where we are setting things up. The sun was going to beat directly down onto this electronic equipment. Yeah, uh-oh. So we had to find some way to provide shade for that so the equipment would not get baked and fried in the sun. Well, we found kind of like a picnic table umbrella type thing, but there was no base for the umbrella. There was no support for the umbrella to, to get it to accomplish its function. You know, most of the time there's, this, there's a large base that has, it's kind of narrow at the top, it widens out at the bottom, and it's, it's heavy, and it, its purpose is to hold that umbrella steady so that it can provide and, and do the job that it is designed to accomplish. But without that support, without something holding it up, it cannot do its work. Well, as a buttress, as a bulwark, as a mainstay, it accomplishes a similar purpose. It fortifies a structure in order to help it maintain, remain upright so that it will be less prone to collapse and so that it can do its work. The truth will do its work. And we as the church have the opportunity and the privilege to support it, to hold it up as it does its work. So that's the first concept. As a buttress, we support the truth. We uphold it so that it can accomplish its purpose and its task. But often a buttress does more than that. Not only does a buttress support the structure, but it also fortifies the structure from outside attack. It's a defensive structure that adds strength in order that the walls may not collapse under pressure from invading forces. It, it supports, it, it fortifies against oncoming forces. Well, if we are to be a buttress, if we are to be a bulwark, a mainstay of the truth, we're to support the truth, we are to defend the truth, What are the implications of that for us? Is our church life ordered in such a way that that we support the truth? Or does our behavior bring shame and reproach upon the name of Jesus Christ? 
Do we aid in the, in the pillar work of upholding and supporting and proclaiming the truth of God's Word? Or do we collapse underneath the weight of that ourselves? If we think about the defensive concept, do we contend earnestly for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints, as Jude speaks of in his epistle? Do we engage with a truth-starved world around us, shining light into the darkness, exposing its futility? When the truth is attacked, do we run and hide or do we support and defend what we know is true? This month is Pride Month. We have opportunities to speak truth into a culture that is celebrating that which God says is Not only wrong, but harmful. Do we run and hide? Do we avoid those conversations? Change the subject? Or do we courageously and boldly support and defend and declare the truth of God's Word? I use the word tenaciously. Support, defend the truth tenaciously. This The word tenacious has really become one of my favorite words for ministry life. It speaks of a persistence, a determination, almost almost a godly stubbornness in the midst of things where you're kind of digging in your heels and you're just like, you know, I'm just going to, I'm bracing myself and I'm just going to keep on going no matter what comes against me, no matter what happens. I know what is right and so I'm going to be, I'm going to be stubborn in the midst of that. Well, we need to tenaciously defend and support the truth of God's Word. And, and what is it that we're defending? And this is the last verse, verse 16. Paul says, Great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. This is the greatness of the gospel. The greatness of the message that we have. The, the, the beauty of what God has given to us. Manifested in the flesh. God made flesh. Entering into our world. Entering into our experiences. Vindicated by the Spirit. Seen by the angels. Proclaimed among the nations. Believed on in the world. And taken up in glory. He says this is our confession. Great indeed we confess. This is our confession. This is what we believe. This is how great our God is. Entering into humanity, vindicated through His resurrection from the dead. The nations have heard and have believed in the name of Jesus Christ. This isn't for one culture. This isn't for one people group. This is for everyone. And now He is now in glory awaiting the day when He shall come again. This is the truth that we get to embody relationally as we interact with one another. This is the truth that we get to uphold as a pillar, proclaiming the truth. And this is the truth that we get to support and defend. Ever since I began studying God's Word more in in high school and in college, I really came to a growing realization over time that going to church doesn't mean showing up to a building. It's the people that are the church, 
right? The individuals, our, our brothers and sisters in Christ, we are the church. This is just a building, right? This is just where Pillar Fellowship meets. And if this building burned down, would Pillar Fellowship cease to exist? No. The people would still exist. We would still find a way to gather. I've sought to instill this within my own children as we talk about the church, uh, using intentional language about how I speak about our gathering place. I've often said, hey, we're going to the place where Pillar Fellowship meets. Because we're not going to a building, just a building. We're going to meet with the people. Recently, I've started adding a few more phrases to help communicate this concept. And these, these aren't all original with me. I've heard others say these things. One pastor calls it the church house. It's not, it's not a church. It's just the church house. It's where the church gathers together to do family business, gathers together to meet as the household of God. Another calls it an embassy. There's another pastor. He, he routinely calls to the church building an embassy. After all, we are God's representatives. So we have come together to gather for, to receive fresh marching orders from the King of Kings as we study His Word. And as we go out into the world, we are to live and act as ambassadors of the Lord. That's what First Corinthians, or Second Corinthians speaks of, rather, that we are ambassadors for Christ. As His ambassadors, we are commanded to speak as He would have us to speak. In other words, we uphold the truth as pillars. And the latest way, the newest uh, way to think about the meeting place that I've started referring to it in my own home, started calling it the, the armory. We're gathering together at the armory. After all, we live in a world that is in constant spiritual battlefield. Satan and his demons would love nothing more than to see us make shipwreck of our faith. And so we gather together to be equipped for this battle. We gather together to be strengthened and trained for this battle as we battle against the spiritual forces of darkness. We fortify ourselves through mutual encouragement and the proclamation of the Word of God so that we may stand against the enemy and so that we might go into the world and see others saved by the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are a bulwark. We are a buttress. We are a mainstay, a defensive structure supporting and upholding the truth of God's Word. Whatever we call this building, it's so critical for us to know who we are. Paul gives us these things. We are God's household church of the living God, a pillar and a buttress of the truth. And He wants us to know this so that we will know how we ought to conduct ourselves as His people. Let's pray. God, I thank You for Your Word. I thank You for how You have revealed it to us. Lord, I thank You that You have fashioned us into a people for your own glory. Once we were not a people, but now we are a people. People from every nation, tribe, and tongue will one day stand before you and worship you as blood-bought sinners. 
We are your church. We are a part of the universal church, those who claim the name of Christ, those who believe in Jesus Christ across the world. Then here in this small portion of southern Indiana, we gather as a local expression of your church. Lord, help us to embrace the reality that that we do not come here for the sake of entertainment. We don't come here for the sake of, of getting. Help us to embrace the reality that we come to be equipped that we may serve others. As your household, Lord, help us to embody the truth relationally as we interact with one another. As a pillar, Lord, help us to Uphold the truth declarationally as we proclaim the truth of your word to a truth-starved world around us that so desperately needs your word. And as a buttress, as a mainstay, as a bulwark of the truth, may we support the truth by how we live our lives. May we never, Lord, guard us against any action, Lord, that would bring shame and reproach upon the church of Christ, upon the name of Christ. May we support the truth by how we live, but may we also defend the truth against a world that is hostile against us, that would seek to attack us, that would seek to tear us down. Strengthen us for that, and may all that we do be done in love for you, in love for one another, in love for a world around us. We are your church. You are the living God. May we live in light of that. We pray all of this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. As we